As many of you know, we have all girls at our house. So I have watched countless numbers of Disney princess movies over the years. And as many of you know who have seen a few of those, there is a similar pattern to these movies and almost always the same kind of ending. Though the princesses may come from different places and have different personalities and the conflict may look a little different with different types of villainous characters, the story almost always ends with the princess and her prince safe and sound to live happily ever after. And normally their happily ever after comes on the heels of the defeat and sometimes even death of the villain in the more morbid of uh, Disney princess movies, right? But, but let me ask you this. Have you ever been watching one of these shows? I'm sure I'm in a, in a camp of my own. But have you ever been watching one of these shows and, and wonder what happens after the credits roll? Maybe I'm thinking too hard on this. Well, let's think about that. What, what happens after they get settled in their palace? Do they never have any more conflict? Do they not have any more issues to deal with on a daily basis? Are there not more villains? Surely there is more to their story than simply riding off into the sunset together. Well, today we are going to see that there is more to the story of Esther and Mordecai. Two weeks ago in chapter 7, we were in a pretty climactic, ironic part of the story, and we learned about how God providentially ended the life of the great villain in this story. And though many often just quit reading or paying attention to the story of Esther after chapter 7 because it seems like a happy ending for Esther and Mordecai after Haman dies. There is more to this story. There are questions that still need to be answered. Questions like, what's going to happen to the rest of God's people? This decree for them to be put to death on this certain day is still in place. We also learn that there is more to the story of Esther and Mordecai because though their great enemy is gone, Esther is still the queen. She's given even more power. We're going to find that out today. And Mordecai is put into a position of power. And the question then needs to be asked, how are they going to rule? And what, if anything, are they going to do for God's people? Well, we're going to talk about that Today, if you have your Bibles, turn to Esther chapter 8. Esther 8, we are continuing our series through Esther entitled The Invisible Hand of God. And today, we are going to see how God works in and through the rule of two Jews. The main two Jews from this story, Esther and Mordecai. But before we do, let me give a brief Recap since we were off last week of where we are in the story for those of you visiting or, or who have been out. We're in the book of Esther, and in this book, there is a king named Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, who rules over the Persian Empire. He's the most powerful, most impressive, influential, and affluent ruler on the planet at this time. And in this story, he is ruling from his palace in 
Susa, which is modern-day Iran. And he spends a great deal of his time just sitting up on his throne like a god. In chapter 1 of this story, he gets upset with his wife because she disobeys him and he gets rid of her. Four years later, he has this enormous competition. This is in Esther chapter 2. Hundreds of women are invited from all over the empire to compete at a chance of being the queen of Persia. And one of the young women in the competition is a Jewish girl by the name of Esther. Her and her cousin who adopted her, he's also her father Mordecai, they are living in Susa. Two Jews living away from God's people, away from his place of worship. So Esther is an orphan Jewish girl living in a foreign land. She is a very unlikely person, yet she is the one chosen to be the next queen. Amazing, right? And in Esther chapter 3, Five years later, we're introduced to a new character, a man by the name of Haman. And the king promotes Haman to a position of power that is the second most powerful in the empire under him. And Haman was an Agagite. And we have said over and over throughout this study that the Agagites and the Jews didn't like one another. Their, their feud went deep. It went way back. They were longtime enemies. This feud actually goes all the way back to two brothers, Jacob and Esau in the book of Genesis. Haman is a wicked guy who loved power and glory and public recognition, and he receives it from most everyone, everywhere he goes, everyone that is, except for Mordecai, right? Mordecai refuses to bow and give Haman the time of day, show him any kind of respect. And this is not something he does once. He does it over and over again. When asked why, he says, because I am a Jew. So what does Haman do? He says, okay, you won't bow. I'm not only going to have you killed, but I'm going to have everyone who is of the Jewish race with you put to death and he brings it before the king and he manipulates Xerxes into giving his stamp of approval his signet ring this decree is signed and stamped and delivered out all across the the Persian empire that the Jews are to be put to death men women and children on a certain day well this decree gets to Mordecai, and he decides to do something about it. And he influences his daughter, the queen, Esther, to do the same. And Esther decides to put her life on the line to go and stand before the king without a formal invitation, which resulted in some losing their life. And she is granted access to the king, and the king says, ask of me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And we said that Esther approaches this situation extremely wise, right? She's very wise in the way she goes about it. She invites the king and Haman to a private dinner party. At the first party, the king asked a second time, ask whatever you want of me and I'll give it to you. But she waits to expose Haman. Meanwhile, after the party, Haman is on his way back from the first party on cloud nine because he has just had a private dinner with the king and the queen of Persia. And as he's on his way home, he has another encounter with Mordecai who refuses to give him the time of day. So he goes home, he's angry, he seeks out some, some wicked and foolish counsel and they talk Haman into building a gallows 75 feet in the air to hang Mordecai on. 
His plan was to go the next day and convince the king to let him kill Mordecai early. Well, meanwhile, the king is having a sleepless night, right? So what does he do because he can't sleep? He has the uh, book of of memorable deeds brought in and read before him. And in that book, just in that book, contained everything that had happened since the king had been in power. And he had been in power now for over a decade, and we learn of all the things that could have been read. What's read to him is about how Mordecai saved his life. We learn about that at the end of Esther chapter 2. Mordecai was working at the king's gate. He heard of a plot to assassinate the king. He lets the queen know. She lets the king know. His life is spared. These men are put to death. It's recorded in the book of memorable deeds. And that's read, and the king says, hey, what do we ever do for that guy? And they said, well, we didn't do anything for him. And the king's like, we really should have done something for him. Well, the next day, Haman is coming to talk to the king. And he wants to talk about Mordecai. And the king wants to talk about Mordecai. But Haman wants to talk about killing him. The king wants to talk about honoring him. And so Haman comes into his presence, and the king asks, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks to himself, surprise, surprise, who would the king delight to honor more than me? So he lets his imagination go wild. He says, dress him up in one of your royal robes and and give him one of your horses that you rode and give him a parade throughout the city. And the king says, sounds great. Do that for Mordecai. (laughs) I love that. I never get tired of hearing that. So good. So good. So Haman does. He has to. He grins and bears it, right? Then he has another dinner party to attend on that evening and Esther exposes who she is and who Haman is and the fact that Haman has been plotting to kill her and her people because Esther is Jewish. The king doesn't like that because an attack against the queen is an attack against the king. So he has Haman hung on his own gallows. Crazy story, right? God is in control here, right? We see God working through providence here. And you would think after that that the curtains would close and that would be the end of the story with Mordecai and Esther riding off into the sunset. But again, there is more to this story. We know what happened to Haman, but what is going to happen with Esther and Mordecai? What is going to be done about this decree that the king has signed off on for the annihilation of the Jews? What's going to happen next? Well, I've revealed a little bit about what we're going to learn today. Esther continues on as queen. She's given more power. And, and we learn that Mordecai is going to be promoted. He is going to take Haman's spot. We're going to see today what happens as these two Jews continue to rule in this pagan Persian empire and how God uses them in their positions of authority to stand on behalf of his people and make an impact for him in this pagan land. So if you're not there yet, get there, Esther chapter 8. Today we're going to be talking about the providence of God through the rule of two Jews. And there are four things that I want you to see here about the rule of Esther and Mordecai in Esther chapter 8. One notice, they accept their position of leadership and exercise authority. That's the first thing they did. Look at verses 1 and 2. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, 
the enemy of the Jews. We know a Jew wrote this, right? Because he always mentions that Haman's an enemy of the Jews. He doesn't let us forget that. Like we wouldn't know from reading it. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So, so let's stop here for a minute. We continue to see, we, we saw it a couple of weeks ago. We're going to see it moving forward as well. There is this reversal of roles that takes place in this story. And we see it here with Mordecai and Haman. King Ahasuerus gave Esther the house of Haman. And after learning who Mordecai was, he's Esther's cousin and her father, he adopted her. Xerxes gave Mordecai Haman's signet ring and Esther gives Mordecai the house of Haman. So we see here that that Esther continues to rule. She's given even more power and she exercises that power and Mordecai takes Haman's place. He becomes one of the most powerful men in the empire. Not a lot more than that there in this opening passage, but but that's a lot, right? There is this, this reversal of roles from Haman to Mordecai. But get this. What is said here is very, very important to what happens next. Listen, one's position and authority is not the most important thing. Do you know that? It's not. It's not the end-all, be-all. That's where Haman got it wrong. Position and authority, were, 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 were that was it for, for Haman. He thought his title, his position, his authority was everything. It's not. It's what you do with it. It's what you do with it. And one thing we see with Esther and Mordecai, we've seen it already, we're going to see it throughout the rest of this book, is we see them use their influence and their authority for God's glory and for the sake of his people. That's what matters. Believers, what are you doing with the authority and the power and the influence that God has given you? You may say, well, I don't have any influence, any power, any authority. Yeah, you do. Some of you are in positions of authority in the workplace. How are you using that position to bring glory to God? How are you using the money that you make from the job that you have for God's kingdom purposes? Maybe you are a student and you're in a position of influence in sports or another school activity. How are you using that position students to to make an impact for God and his kingdom and to bring glory to him parents you have authority in the home if not you should are you using that authority to point your kids to Jesus grandparents same goes for you are you sharing Christ on a regular basis with those in your home are you discipling believers in your household you should Whatever authority and influence you have, I pray you exercise that authority and use that influence to the glory of God. That's a lesson we learn here from Mordecai and Esther. Notice what else they do with the authority they've been given. They selflessly lead on behalf of God's people. Look at verses 3 through 6. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against 
the Jews. So notice that the plan is still in place. We talked about that. And instead of just being happy that Haman is dead and just kicking back and enjoying being the king with her dad at her side, Esther continues to push. She continues to take risks, going before the king once again, and this time she falls at his feet and cries and pleads for him to do something about this evil decree. Verse 4, when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes. Boy, she is really being careful with her words. Do you see that? She's being very, very wise in the way she's going about that. We've said that before. It's not just about doing the right thing we got to do the right thing in the right way at the right time with the right motives or we may end up with the wrong results. A lot of wisdom there. We need to be careful to exercise wisdom in those situations. She says, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamidatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Notice it's my people, my kindred now. Esther has made a turn, hasn't she? She, she is selflessly leading on behalf of her people, God's people. Esther is leading here in a humble and selfless way. This queen is throwing herself down at the king's feet, weeping and, and pleading with them on behalf of them. She is putting them first, and she is willing to humble herself for their sake. Sound familiar? Christ did this for us, did he not? King Jesus stepped off of his throne for our sakes. He humbled himself for our sakes. He put his life on the line for our sakes. He laid his life down for our sakes. We read that today in Philippians 2. Believers, there is great application to be made by you and me. If Esther put her life on the line for people and Jesus laid his life down for people, if they used their authority and their power and their influence for the sake of others, shouldn't we? We should. God's telling us something here with a great big cosmic highlighter. He's showing us something here. What can we take with us into eternity? Who's going to be there with us? God is his heavenly host and his people, right? That's it. All the stuff that you have and enjoy, the education you have, the position you have at work, the house you live in, the money you have in the bank, none of that is coming with you. It's not. We see it go to other people after people go and leave this life, right? We see it every day. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with having those things. Nothing wrong with enjoying the blessings that God gives. But God does want us, he wants you and me to see those things in the proper light as secondary, temporal, and earthly things. And he wants you to use those things that he has blessed you with for his kingdom purposes. Again, can you use the position you're in at work to make an impact for God's kingdom? Yes, you can and should. 
Can you use the money that you make and the job you have to advance God's kingdom? Yes, you can and you should. Can you use your home that you love so much for God's kingdom purposes? Yes, you can and you should. We see Esther using what she has for God's kingdom purposes. And how's the king going to respond? Esther has taken a bold stance before the king on behalf of her people. How's the king going to respond? Look at verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to, to, to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. The king's basically saying, I've done what I can do. I've gotten rid of the wicked Haman and replaced him with Mordecai. But then he does a little bit more. Notice verse 8. This is actually a big thing. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. It cannot be changed. And by the way, that last line was why the king could do nothing about the first edict. The king couldn't even change it. It had been sealed with his ring. It was set in stone. If it was done in this way at this time, nothing could change it. But he says this. He says, you could decree something else that could challenge that which has already been decreed. Are you with me? And that's what they're going to do. Notice the next point. Point number three. We learn in verses 9 through 14 that they, Esther and Mordecai, wisely defend God's people. Look at what they do. Look at verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time. In the third month, which is the month of Saban, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. That's a huge kingdom, isn't it? That's a ginormous empire, and we see the power and the influence that God, through providence, has given to Esther and Mordecai. It's amazing, isn't it? To each province, in its own script, and to each people, in its own language, and also to the Jews, in their script and their language. Verse 10. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring, same as Haman had done. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. So these are the best horses they got. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives. Underline that word defend. We're going to come back to that in a minute. To destroy to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, verse 13. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. All right. 
So we see here, here's what's happened here. Mordecai has come up with the plan. He has, he has come up with the decree to counter the decree that Haman sealed with the king's ring. And let me just tell you, some have issues with what is decreed here. Many question God on this. And they say, why would God's man, Mordecai, make a decree that said that Jews could kill non-Jews, women and children included, and, and plunder their goods? What's going on here? Surely God wouldn't sign off on that, would he? Why does, why does he work to put Mordecai into this position of authority only to let him do what Haman did? Well, let's talk about it. First, does he do what Haman did? No, he's trying to undo what Haman did, right? And because he could not cancel the first decree, he has to give a second decree that counters the first in every way. Everything about this decree that Mordecai gives is a counter to Haman's. It's the exact reversal of the first decree. Sometimes a careful reading of Scripture can answer a lot of questions, right? really can. In Esther 3, Haman sent forth the decree saying that the non-Jews could kill the Jews on a certain day and kill them all. Men, women, and children. And so Mordecai sends a second decree that says the Jews have a right to defend themselves. Is self-defense wrong? No. We see that here, and we see that other places in Scripture as well. They have a right to defend their families. In Mordecai's decree, it says the Jews in every city in the empire are allowed on this one day. That's what it says in verse 12. They're coming to kill the Jews on this one day, so the Jews have a right to defend themselves on this one day. And if a Jewish household came against God's people, God's people have the right to defend themselves against men, women, and children. It says, even if women and children, if they come, they have a right to defend themselves. They have a right to go to war against those who go to war against them and plunder their goods. This is justice and was written to protect God's appointed people. And again, they were not to carry this out for weeks and months and, and, and years, just this one day. And some will say, well, this includes killing. And that goes counter to God's commands, doesn't it? No. God's commands say do not murder. There is, there is a difference between killing and murder. Killing always takes place when, when murder happens, but murder doesn't always take place when killing happens. You with me? Haman wanted to murder Mordecai. And the enemies of the Jews in the Persian Empire, they wanted to murder God's people. If God's people defend themselves and kill in self-defense, they're not guilty of murder. All right? Some will argue, well, I, I thought that all human life is valuable. If that's the case, would any killing be okay? Why would it be if that's the case? And my answer is because all life is valuable. Listen, God allows at times for lives to be taken when that life takes the life of another unjustly. We see him do it. And we see his people do it, and he allows for it at times because life is precious, okay? And spoiler alert, we're going to learn next week in Esther chapter 9 that the Jews only killed those who came against them in, 
And several different times we're told they did not touch the plunder. They did not plunder their enemies. That's grace. That's grace right there. You always see grace and mercy coupled with God's judgment throughout and his justice throughout Scripture when God is at work. So we're going to talk about that more next week. What an awesome work that God's leaders are doing here. Here we have Esther and Mordecai wisely defending God's people. God knows what he's doing, putting these two prominent Jews into positions of leadership. And this wise decree saves God's appointed people. Esther and and Mordecai, they, they emerge here at the end of this book as two great Leaders, two of the greatest, in fact, in Jewish history and, and biblical history. Notice one more thing they do that's significant in this chapter. It's real easy to miss. It's real easy to gloss over it. They effectively impact the Persian Empire. Though we said at the beginning of the study, Esther and Mordecai are in the wrong place, right? They're not where they're supposed to be. They should have been away from that pagan Persian land. They should have returned back toward Jerusalem. Yet we have God using them here in spite of their disobedience and the disobedience of other Jews. He's using them to make an impact for them and to save them and to make an impact in this pagan Persian land. Look at verses 15 through 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes. Notice how things have changed for Mordecai. In royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen. Man, things have changed for Mordecai. His promotion is kind of like that of of Joseph's in in Egypt, in Genesis. That's kind of the equivalent I think of here. And, And we're told the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Again, the situation has changed for the Jews in this land. Though they still had enemies, the tide is turning for them. Look at verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. They're they're partying now. Remember, they were mourning and fasting earlier. You notice that change that God brought about? They went from mourning and fasting to rejoicing and feasting. And, And get this, this is really easy to miss. Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. Wow. Many non-Jews identified themselves with the Jews. How about that in this this area? For fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now we learn in Scripture that non-Jewish people had the opportunity to identify with the Jewish people. They could become God-fearers, which is a word we talked about, a title we talked about in the book of Acts when we studied through, right? That's a term we'll hear later. And they could place their faith and trust in the one true God of the scriptures and be numbered among God's people. And I believe that's probably what happened here in this pagan land with some people. Now, there were probably some that identified with God's people for the wrong reasons out of a fear of losing their life. And, you know, Mordecai's large and in charge now, so there was a fear there. But I, but I also think there were some who were genuine. And I I think about all the opportunities that God's people would have had going forward 
to be great witnesses for God throughout this empire after this. And though, though Esther and, and Mordecai should not have been where they were, should have been closer to Jerusalem, God used them in this pagan Persian land to be witnesses for him. Imagine as word was spreading about the mighty Jews, I imagine that word was also spreading about their mighty God. He'd done an incredible work, incredible story. God uses these two Jews in awesome ways for his purposes and for his glory. And believers, he'll use you in that way as well. He will. God, same God today at work through his people. Maybe you're here and you're not happy with where you are in life. You're just waiting for this chapter to close in your life and a new chapter to open with new opportunities. Listen, do not let the enemy, do not let your sinful flesh keep you from seeing opportunities that God is giving you right now at present to serve him. Right now is where God has you. And it's for a reason. It's for his purposes. It's to minister. Don't miss out on that waiting for a new chapter to open. Okay? He has you where he has you for his purposes and for his glory, believers. Don't waste those opportunities. Let me, let me end with, with this. Though this is an incredible work that Esther and Mordecai do on behalf of their people, and we're going to see more of that next week. And the impact they made throughout this godless pagan empire is undeniable. The work they accomplish in this story pales in comparison to the superior work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pales in comparison. Though Mordecai and Esther acted as earthly saviors, Jesus is our heavenly Savior. Though Mordecai and Esther provided salvation for God's people in a temporal and physical way, get this, Jesus provides salvation for us in an eternal way. Though Esther and Mordecai, through the work they did, they enabled God's people to fight for and save themselves, Jesus accomplished all the work at the cross and said it is finished. He provided that for us, for us who cannot save ourselves though Mordecai was sentenced to death only to rise up and save people from death and rule like a king Jesus actually did die he rose again so that he might reign as our king of kings in the book of Esther we learn that the death of God's enemies allowed God's people to live but in the gospels we learn that Jesus died so that his enemies might live that includes you and me like it or not, that's Bible truth. We're set against him in our sin. But through the person and work of Jesus, we can move from being an enemy of God's to being a child of God's. We can move to the courtroom being declared not guilty, and then we can move into the, the living room of our Heavenly Father and be called sons and daughters. All because of what Jesus did for us you can experience this wonderful gift of salvation today. You can, you can know that you can and will live with the Lord forever if you would turn from your sin, give your life up and over to him. If you would swear your allegiance to King Jesus today, make him your Lord, forsake your sin, you will be saved. If you've never made that decision for Jesus, I pray you would today. Let's pray.